Good morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. Thank you for being here. And uh, this morning, I see that we have a few new faces. And if you are new here, I know it is always weird to go to a new church. Being a pastor, I visit another church, and I feel weird. So uh, I get it. My hope is that you feel like you are welcome here, that you're part of the family, and I would love to meet you. So if we have not met yet, please introduce yourself to me after the service uh, so, so I can get to know you. I would appreciate that uh, very much as a favor to me. To bring you up to speed, we've been looking at the life of, of David in, in a, a series called In Search of a King. And uh, last week, we looked at the life of uh, a snapshot in the life of David when young David as a boy killed Goliath, a giant, right? And then after he killed Goliath, Uh, the rest of God's people shared in his victory and singing the praises of of God and singing the praises of of David. And David, uh, after that point, became this victorious leader. And uh, he was incredibly loved by his soldiers, loved by the servants, loved by all of Israel. And King Saul becomes insanely jealous, insanely jealous of David. Because everything is going awesome for David. But now what we see in chapters 19 through 21 of of the story of David, everything starts to fall apart for him. And it raises a very important question. It's probably a question uh, you may have um, asked yourself at some point. And the question is this. God, when your people try to obey you, when your people try to do what is right, Why is it that so often they get the short end of the sick and the wicked prosper? Has that question ever bothered you before? Yeah, I think it does for all of us at one point or another. And in these chapters, David is trying to obey God. He is trying to do what is right. But King Saul, the king of the land, is using all of his resources at his disposal to track down David and to kill him. And it looks like Saul's gaining on him. What in the world is going on? Well, I I think that you could say that the theme of these chapters is Saul meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Now, that's a, theme, uh, that's a theme that we see throughout the Scriptures. I think one of the first times we see it phrased like that is back in Genesis in the story of, of Joseph. And we see that kind of theme all throughout the Scripture. And here in this story, the theme is, Saul meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God's purpose here in these chapters, we will see. God's purpose is to remove crutches from David's life. To remove crutches from David's life. And a crutch is anything or anyone other than the Lord that we depend on for our satisfaction and for our security and for our significance. A.W. Tozer um, wrote The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing. And listen to what he says. He says, Before the Lord made man upon the earth, he first prepared for him by creating a world of useful and pleasant things for his sustenance and delight. In the Genesis account of creation, these are called simply things. 
They were made for man's uses, but they were meant always to be external to man and subservient to him. In the deep heart of the man was a shrine where none but God was worthy to come. Within him was God, without a thousand gifts which God had showered upon him. But sin has introduced complications and has made those very gifts of God a potential source of ruin to the soul. This is no joke. And it's pervasive. This is why God tells us through, through Moses that, that the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. In other words, the very best thing we can do is to lean on God for our security, to lean God for our significance, to lean on God for our satisfaction, not his gifts. And we do that all of the time. In fact, we, we do it so mindlessly. God, in his mercy, removes our crutches. And we see God do that here with David. And so let's, be look at, let's, let's begin by looking at the story and what we learn about David. And in this story, I see five crutches removed that David had. And the first one is his job. In, in chapter 19, we see that David was this high-ranking officer in the Israelite army. He was uh, King Saul's most trustworthy servant, and he was winning one military campaign after another. And instead of being thankful, Saul was filled with jealousy. He was afraid of David. He saw David as, as a threat to his position. He saw David as a, a threat to his popularity with the people. And in a fit of jealous rage, Saul picks up his spear and threw it at David. Saul does that at least three different times that I've seen um, in, in the Scripture. When he gets mad, he throws a spear at somebody. So often, people who are who are out to get us are afraid of us for one reason or another. Well, the spear just, just missed David, but nevertheless, David got the point. And that night, David flees. He's on the run. He is a fugitive. Never again does David serve in Saul's army. That's the first crutch that he lost, which was his job. A position of prestige, a, a, a position of power and popularity, gone. The second crutch that is removed is his wife, Michal. It says that David flees and escapes to his, his house and wife. And so Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill David in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, said, warned David and says, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. And that sounds like a faithful warning. So far. So Michal lets, lets David down through the window, and David takes off. And then Michal takes an idol, lays it in the bed, uh, covers it with a garment, and puts some goat's hair by its head. It's like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And when Saul's soldiers enter, they, they barge in to capture David. Michal says he's sick. And they leave, which is weird to me. We're here to arrest David. He's sick. Can you call back tomorrow and we'll, we'll arrange the arrest then? Right? 
So they go back to Saul and say, we didn't arrest him because he's sick. And Saul said, are you kidding me? He says, bring him to me in his bed so that I may kill him. But when the men enter, there in the bed was the idol with goat's hair. And so now Saul confronts Michal, which happens to be his daughter, by the way. Saul was David's father-in-law. Whatever problems you have with your in-laws are nothing compared to this right here. And he says to her, why did you deceive me like this and send the enemy away so, so that he escaped? And now Michal lies. She lies and says, David said, let me get away or I will kill you. This totally provokes her father's anger towards David even more. And never again do we see David and Michal's relationship restored to intimate companionship. So the second crutch God removes was David's wife. The third crutch removed is his mentor, his spiritual counselor, the prophet. Remember who that was? It was Samuel, right? David flees and escapes to, to Samuel. Samuel was the one who anointed David to be the next king. And David flees to this man of God. And Samuel takes David to Naioth. Now why does he take him there? Well, it's because the schools of the prophets, maybe it's because the schools of the prophets were there, kind of like a seminary, and Saul wouldn't take David by force from the seminary, would he? Also, Naioth in Hebrew means dwellings, and archaeological finds indicate that it was named because the buildings there were kind of like condos built back to back, side to side, top to bottom, and it was kind of like a maze. It probably would have been difficult to find David. Now, Whatever the reason Samuel took David to Naioth, it didn't stop Saul. He, he sent his men there, and he finally goes himself as well just to make sure the job gets done right. And so in chapter 20, it says, David fled Naioth. And the next time that Samuel is mentioned is all the way back in chapter 25 where it says, now Samuel died. This was the last time that David was with Samuel. So that's the third crutch David lost. His, his wise mentor, this, this prophet Samuel. So, where will David go and lean now? Well, he goes to his best friend. David flees from Naioth and goes to Jonathan. Jonathan was his closest friend and he was King Saul's oldest son. They were so close, the scripture describes it as if their souls were knitted together, right? And, and David asked Jonathan, what have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he's trying to take my life? And for the first time, what we see is that David is beginning to experience despair. His, his emotional support is starting to break down. And David says, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only, only one step between me and death. Those right there are desperate words. Ha, have you ever lived like that? I mean, not just one or two spears flying by your head, but, but constantly living under the threat of instant death. Some of you have. But imagine the stress, right? The desperation. 
one step away from death. Well, David knows that he's going to have to run again, and this may be the last time that he sees his best friend. And so David bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground, and it says that they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Then David left. And except for a brief visit with each other to exchange a few words and Horish, this was the last time that David and Jonathan spent any real time together. The fourth crutch David lost was his closest friend. And then finally, the fifth crutch that David loses is his dignity, his personal dignity. You know, up to this point, David hadn't done anything wrong, right? There was nothing wrong with, going to, with us going to our spouses or our, our mentors or our friends in our time of need. In fact, God wants us to do that. He just doesn't want us to depend on them for things only he can give. They can never live up to what only God can do. And so he wants us, for our good, to lean on him. And you know what? David has been doing that. But somewhere between chapter 20 and and 21, David's trust wavers. He stumbles. He, He disobeys God. He lies. He goes to Ahimelech, the priest. And when the priest asks why he's come to him, David tells him that he's on a special mission from the king. And and he asks the priest, hey, uh, do you happen to have a sword I I, I can borrow? I left in such a hurry, I forgot my sword at home. And Ahimelech says, yeah, I've got a sword for you. It's the sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed, is here. So David puts on Goliath's sword, flees from Saul, and goes to the city of Gath. Do you remember Gath? you remember who is from Gath? It's Goliath. And he's going there with Goliath's sword. And everybody would have recognized his sword. David is in the capital of the enemy. The headquarters of the Philistine enemies. And what in the world is David doing in Gath wearing Goliath's sword? Well, most likely, he is there to offer himself as a mercenary to the other enemies of God. And what David is doing here is that he is seeking refuge outside of the promised land. He's not trusting in the Lord to protect him from Saul. David is seeking refuge with the enemy, with the enemies of God, with the enemies of God's people. And then the Philistine servants say to the the king of the Philistines, isn't this David, the one they, they, the Israelites sing about, saw his slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands? They are quoting a song that the Israelites were singing about how David killed ten thousands upon thousands of Philistines. David realizes he made a big mistake. He became scared. He is surrounded by people who are looking at him saying, you killed tens of thousands of our people. And he is all alone, by himself. What's he do? The scripture, as we read earlier, he pretends to be insane. He acts like a madman. 
he starts scribbling on, on the gate and he lets spit run out of his mouth and into his beard. That is our hero, our champion, right? Foaming at the mouth, scribbling on the gate, out of his mind, spit running into his beard. That is total desperation. Every crutch has been removed. He had a job and he lost it. He had a wife and he lost it. He had a mentor and he lost him. He had a best friend and he lost his best friend. And now his personal dignity, gone. Except for when he lost his son Absalom, this is the lowest moment in his life. All of his crutches are gone. Let me ask you, have you ever been there? Most of us have. Most of us have experienced the, the pain of having crutches removed. And just from personal experience, I mean, the longer I live, the more I realize how much I take um, for granted or how much I mindlessly lean on other things other than the Lord for my satisfaction or for my security or for my significance. And I'm recognizing more and more the things, whatever is going on in my life, and most of you know, you know some of the challenges our, our family has faced over the last you know, few years or whatever, more and more I'm realizing that God is mercifully removing crutches. Normally my tendency is to just kind of grit my teeth and let it pass. But God wants to teach us to lean completely on him. Totally on him. So, what do you do when you're there? Well, what did David do? This particular text doesn't tell us. However, David does tell us elsewhere in Psalm 34. And, and the note in the scripture, not an editor's note, but a part of scripture, the note at the beginning of Psalm 34 says, the Psalm of David, when he pretended to be insane before the king of the Philistines who drove him away. And David explains what he did. He says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all of my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. And this is referring back to an incident when he had like his own spit all over his face. And he says that those who look to him are radiant and their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And you know what? The Lord delivers David from his enemy. How? How? How does the Lord deliver David from his enemy here? Well, David, here's David. He's, he's pretending to be totally insane, and it's a picture of total weakness and, and total humiliation. They, they bring him before King Achish, and, and, and so he's surrounded by all of these enemies, and, and they all know that, that you killed thousands upon thousands. Of, my, my, my brothers, my uncles, my, my dad, you killed them. So, David's a dead man, right? He's as good as dead. But check out what happens. 
King Achish says to his servant, I, I love this, he says, look at the man, he's, he's insane, why bring him to me? And, and he says this, am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this one here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? He says, we got enough insane men around here, I don't need another one, take this dude out of here. Get rid of him. And the next verse says, David left Gath and escaped. He's all alone in enemy territory, surrounded by people who, men who want to kill him, and God delivers him. And he delivers him not just from his weakness and humiliation. God delivers David through his weakness and humiliation. It's important. And that's the story. Now the question is, what do we do with the story? Well, one of the things that we've been saying so far is there are two ways to interpret uh, the Scripture here, especially in the Old Testament. We can do what's most popular, then interpret it the moralistic way, and then, or we can interpret it the gospel way. And the difference between moralism and the gospel is the difference between do and done. If you look at the story of David in a moralistic way, you will think this is all about what I have to do. I have to trust God more. And it's true. You know what? We all need to trust God more. But if that's all we have, um, and you look at the story uh, that way, it'll crush you. But if you look in a gospel way, you will think this is all about what God has done through Jesus. So when, 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 when you go through the pain of having your crutches removed, and I don't know what it is, I don't know if it's your job or spouse, a friend, or whatever it is, when you go through the pain of having crutches mercifully removed, the moralistic way will initially, could initially uh, motivate you to, to try harder to trust more. And, and that can be a good thing, but on its own, it will lead to despair because eventually it will expose how little faith you really have. That can be disorienting. That can mess you up. That can crush you. But the gospel way leads to, to joy. The gospel way leads to, to grateful love. The gospel way leads to incredible courage and, in fact, more faith. Because no matter what happens to you, no matter what crutches are removed, you know that God is delivering you and has delivered you from the greater enemy, from ultimate shame, and from ultimate death through Jesus's weakness and humiliation. The difference between moralism and the gospel is the difference between do and done. And so the first question we want to ask is not, what must I do? The, the first question we need to ask is, what has God done through Jesus? Now, time out one second. I know it's very easy, possibly, uh, for someone to be sitting in here uh, thinking, does the text really point us to Jesus, or is this big, sweaty, loud-mouth preacher just reading into the text? Well, that's a good question. And you can go to our website, check out the last two sermons where we talk about the biblical demand for this way of interpreting. But let me just point out one thing. 
Now, listen to Psalm 34, the psalm that we just read earlier, where Psalm is kind of recounting this incident that, that we just, uh, of, of the story that we're going through. Listen to Psalm 34, where David writes about this incident. He says, A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones, not one of them will be broken. Now, look at the account of Jesus' crucifixion in the Gospel of John. The soldiers, therefore, came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. It is a direct quote from Psalm 34 that David writes about when it comes to our story. So, we're on solid interpretive ground when we ask, what do we learn from David about Jesus and the gospel? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw out four things that we learn about Jesus and the gospel. The first is this. Jesus had every crutch removed. Jesus came to us as the Lord's anointed, but the religious and the political authorities, the, the Saul's of Jesus' day, were filled with jealousy. They were filled with anger. They feared Jesus. They saw him as a threat to their power and their prestige and their position, and so they plotted to kill him. And Jesus had the support of the people, but then he lost that. Their Palm Sunday song of Hail, King of the Jews, turned into crucify him, crucify him. And he had close friends, but he lost them. In his time of his greatest need, he asked his friends to pray with him, and they fell asleep. And the same night, one betrayed him, one denied him, and all of them deserted him. And he had his dignity, but he lost that too. He who shared the Father's glory before the world was created experienced total weakness and humiliation. He was arrested, he was taunted, he was spit upon, and then he was nailed to the cross. And, and as people walked by, they hurled vulgarities at him, mocked him, and made fun of him in his suffering. And then, on top of all that, something else happens that we can never fully comprehend. Remember I said David had every crutch removed? Well, that wasn't completely accurate. David never lost the Lord's presence or the Lord's protection. Even when David stopped trusting the Lord and, and took refuge in Gath among the, his people's enemy, the Lord was still there to protect him. But here's Jesus. Jesus lived in a loving in the loving presence of the Father for all of eternity, but then it was gone. As he hung on the cross, the Father withdrew his presence and protection, obviously, from his Son. And in the darkness, the Son cried out, Why have you forsaken me? And the Father was silent. Jesus descended unto death, forsaken by God, every crutch removed. 
But Jesus still leaned fully on the Lord. Even there, Jesus fully trusted his Father. After crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He then prayed, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last. David, in his most desperate moment, took refuge in Gath. In the depths of darkness and wrath, in the most intense suffering imaginable, Jesus took refuge in the Lord. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. God the Father heard his cry. And that's the third thing that we learn, that Jesus was delivered from the greater enemy. On the third day, Jesus was delivered from death and darkness. The enemy could not hold him. Jesus had never sinned. He had always leaned on the Lord. Therefore, God heard his cry and raised him from the dead. And the gospel is this, that Jesus leaned on the Lord for us. Jesus leaned on the Lord for us. He did all of this as our representative. He did all of this as our stand-in. He had every crutch removed, and yet he fully leaned on the Lord for us so that our sin of little faith is forgiven and we could be credited with his full and perfect faith. Moralism says do this and you will live. If you're going to go through hard times, you know, if you find yourself going through hard times, just trust God more and then because of what you do, he will deliver you. But please hear me. That is an incomplete message and therefore it is not the gospel. The gospel does not just say trust more. The gospel does not say just do more. The gospel says trust the one who fully trusted God for you. That right there is amazing grace. Your salvation does not depend on you. Your salvation does not depend on what you must do. Your salvation does not depend on the amount of faith that you have. It depends completely on the object of your faith. No matter how much faith I have, if it is in something other than Jesus, I am lost. On the other hand, no matter how little you think your faith is, no matter how weak you think that your faith is, if your faith is in Jesus, he is strong enough to save you. None of us have ever trusted God enough. But Jesus has. And even in the darkest, most painful of times, and the gospel is that he did that for you. Therefore, because of that, therefore, you can now lean on the Lord. Therefore, your faith will grow and get stronger. Only because of Jesus. Why is it so difficult for us to, to, to trust him, to lean on the Lord? Why is it that, that when crutches are being removed, we find it hard to to just simply trust him. And I think the reason is because we look at passages like this, and not just passages like this, but all of life in a moralistic way. 
We, say, we think to ourselves, whether, whether uh, consciously or subconsciously, we think that there are two kinds of people, that, you know, good people and bad people. People keep the rules and people don't keep the rules. God blesses the good people with a good life and God punishes, you know, the bad people. So if I keep the rules and God will give me a good life, you know that is not true. Deep down, you know that's not true. I mean, Jesus lived a perfect life, and look what happened to him. And when our crutches get removed, whatever it is, a job, a spouse, a friend, a loved one, our dignity, you get angry. And that is a gracious red flag. God wants us to pay attention. When that anger kicks in, that's a telltale sign. You think that you've been keeping the rules. And you get angry at God. God, you know what? I don't deserve this. I've been trying real hard to be good. This isn't fair. Or you realize that you really actually haven't been keeping the rules. And you get angry with yourself. And you say, God must be punishing me. But, when I look at, at life in a gospel way, I don't, I don't get angry with God because I know that I deserve far worse than whatever can happen to me in this life. <laughs> anything, anything less than the wrath of God that Jesus got on the cross is a deal. And you won't beat yourself up in anger because you know God's not punishing you. Jesus has already taken the punishment for your sin on the cross. That's what the cross is all about. So my encouragement to you is that you can trust God and his everlasting arms. It is grace. It is mercy. It is love for you when he removes crutches because they will let you down and rip you off. Even if, if your crutches are good things, they can never live up to the security and satisfaction and significance that we find in a loving Heavenly Father who delights in you, who is for you, who wants the best for you. So you can trust God to use the removal of crutches for your good. You can trust God to give you all you really need for whatever it is that you face. You can trust God to deliver you from the greater enemy. You can trust him. And I'll close with this. A.W. Tozer ends the blessedness of owning me nothing with this prayer. Listen to this prayer. He says, Father, I want to know thee, but my coward heart fears to give up its toys. I cannot part with them without inward bleeding, and I do not try to hide from thee the terror of the parting. I come trembling, but I do come. Please root from my heart all those things I've cherished so long and which have become a very part of my living itself so that thou mayest enter and dwell there without a rival. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads with me?
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing grace. And so often we don't even recognize it. God, I, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see with, with new eyes and have a new understanding of the grace that you have for us in Jesus Forgive us for our little faith. God, open our eyes to see how little faith we actually have. And Father, it is my prayer um, that we would see Jesus that we would see that he trusted you completely and he did that for us. And God, may that truth, that gospel truth of who Jesus is and what he's done, God, we pray that would, in fact, then produce the fruit of faith, a greater faith, a stronger faith in you. So God, help us to be able to know that we can rest in your everlasting arms. God, I pray, Lord, that if there's anybody here who, who has never decided that they are going to fully trust you, God, I pray, Lord, that, that you would grant them the gift of, of faith this morning grant them the courage to trust you and to follow you as their king, as their Lord. God, help them to trust you. That you took all their punishment for all their sin, past, present, and future, so that they could have a relationship with you, knowing that you are their loving Heavenly Father who delights in them. God, for, for the rest of us who claim to trust you, um, I pray that you would enable us to, to prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, um, to freely confess our sin, freely confess our little faith, knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so we can come, because of Jesus, we can come to the table confidently that Jesus had perfect faith for us. And through that gospel, increase our faith today. We pray these things in your name.